All right. Welcome back to the Bootstrapped Experience podcast with Jack and myself, Bjorn. Jack has changed locations. He's moved to London. He's there now. I'm looking at him. How's it going? Yeah, really good. It's been a crazy couple of weeks, but I've managed to get into London. I don't have reliable internet, so I apologize if my audio quality isn't great. My microphone is on a boat on its way to England at the moment. But yeah, it's been really fun just going around trying to get everything set up, new apartment, all that. Did you do a lot of research before you headed off like about obviously where in London you were going to be, but around like the business side of things or was it more like the lifestyle side of things? Yeah, more just the lifestyle side of things. And actually, this might be interesting to talk about for a minute because I had posted on Twitter recently just that it's kind of cool that just doing the Shopify app is sort of what enabled me to move here. And some people DM me and stuff asking me questions about all that. And so I'm actually here on a global talent visa, which is if you're like a bootstrap entrepreneur, it's an awesome visa if you have any interest in moving to England. They're basically trying to attract people like us to move here start businesses, even if they're small, just anything in tech. And so that's how I was able to get over here. Smart. I guess it's the talent that they get, right? More than the business itself. That's interesting for them. Yeah, they basically want some proof that if you've got like a big Twitter audience or a podcast or something like that, like that's the kind of stuff they want to see. I think they want sort of people that are going to speak out on behalf of the tech scene here and all that. And so, yeah, it's pretty cool. And you're in a new location, I can see you've got, what do you call it, like sound dampening foam panels all around you and yeah. Yeah, because I don't have internet here yet. It apparently takes a long time to set up, I'm learning. So I went out very quickly and found a co-working space here that I'm enjoying very much. This is actually my first day here. Oh, nice. Yeah. And it's got a podcast studio in it. Sort of. It's at least got these soundproof rooms, but I'll have to bring my own mic once that comes. <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh, that's cool. How do you find the co-working space itself? Is it just one that's around where you live or? Yeah, this is kind of a cool story because I've been, as I've been so extra busy lately, I've been thinking more about like automation and delegating some tasks and stuff. So I started to do this research myself in this co-working space. There are hundreds and hundreds of co-working spaces in London. I couldn't make heads or tails of it. I was spending like, I could just see I was going to dive into this and spend weeks on it probably. So I went on Upwork and I made a job post for like a virtual assistant researcher type person. They were able to compile a list of every co-working space that was in about a 30-minute you know, bus or tube ride from my new apartment. They did all the research on the pricing, contacted them about studios and soundproofing places for this. And yeah, basically gave me a short list of about 50 in the end co-working spaces. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like if the list was that big, then it sounds like there's a lot of choice, right? There is. It's huge. Yeah. I like the one I chose. I mean, it was kind of partially an emergency because I really wanted to start this podcast again. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I might see you in another location next time. Yeah, maybe. Well, you know, I signed up here for a month. Um, that's a nice. None of them have long commitments or anything. So I'll see how I like this one and we'll go from there. Yeah, nice. That sounds good. It's a smart way of doing it to outsource some of the research. And I've read a lot of, I guess, the whole thing that started my whole entrepreneurial journey was the 4-Hour Workweek book by Tim Ferriss, right? And in that one, he goes on a lot about using virtual assistants and things to sort of organize your day. But I've always had a tough time thinking, well, what are they going to do for me, right? Because, I mean, how often do I travel? You know, yeah, travel is a great example. What you've just done is a great example, but they're like one-off things, right? For sure. I don't have enough in my day-to-day to have a personal assistant to run around and do stuff. I have a theory on this a little bit. I think the software developers like us are a little 
different. Like maybe we're not going to have that day-to-day drudgery because we kind of tend to naturally automate it as we go through it. But when I've talked to like people that own e-commerce businesses and things like that, like other kinds of online businesses, they do have a lot of like sort of admin tasks that we don't necessarily have that they can benefit from. But yeah, I kind of, because I've kind of always thought about that through the years of like, oh, maybe I can save myself tons of hours, but I don't actually have that much usually that exactly. is kind of like drudgery. Yeah, and once you've done all the hiring and vetting and all that type of thing, you've almost used more time on that than you would have just doing all the tasks yourself, from my point of view. But I can definitely see what you mean, and especially if you've got any kind of data entry and these types of things, or sort of more logistical problems. I'm sure that there's a lot of older things that you just can't automate in those businesses. You know, if you've got a nine-to-five job or something like that, then being able to have somebody else take care of things while you're at work, whereas I guess, yeah, one of the great things about being self-employed or yeah, working in tech, as you say, we're very flexible in our working times as well. So if I've got to duck out and do something, I take that as a welcome break in my day. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And then if I've got a crunch to get something done, then yeah, maybe I'll sit down in the evening and continue on. I don't have to be somewhere or to, to get my work done, right? I can just have the computer. It just always struck me as one of those things that, oh yeah, that sounds so smart, but <laughs> what am I going to use it for? Yeah. Yeah. So what else have you been up to? Just doing some stuff for Translate CI. So I've kind of been, I guess the big development project I did recently was switching from just using GitHub for OAuth to actually becoming a full-fledged GitHub app. Yeah. So I just released that. There's some cool sort of advantages to that. So users are able to give me more like fine-grained permissions. You know, you can just say Translate CI gets access to this repo, but not that one, which is not possible with OAuth. It just inherits all the users' permissions. So hopefully that should maybe take away some of the reluctance I was seeing to connect GitHub to Translate CI. Yeah. I think that means more than maybe give it credit for, right? A lot of people will just go, uh-oh, that's, I'm not doing that, right? Yeah, I would do that. So I get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the only reason I didn't sort of question that, I know you, is okay, yeah, I'll do this. But at the same time, it's like, okay, I'm giving you a lot of access here, right? So I think that's a very smart move. Yeah. And I was actually, you know, I was looking. So I know I've kind of said before, like, man, hardly anyone is setting up projects. Here's what I found actually a few months on that's really interesting is that people are slow to set up projects, but it is actually happening. Like at this point, I'm seeing about 50% of users have connected a Git repository and created their first project, which is awesome. So maybe the cycle is a little slower than I'm used to, but it looks like it's actually like I'm seeing like people come on board as customers now that originally signed up three months ago. But I think that makes sense because it would be often project-related work that they're going to use it for, right? So maybe they're just planning out, okay, what tools am I going to use? So then you know, they try it out and go, okay, hey, this could be a good solution. And then they go off and actually start the project. And then there's a time gap between starting and actually getting the project far enough that they need to start looking at translations. Yeah, for sure. And sometimes you need to ready the code base a little bit. So, and that, I understand that can get pushed down the road sometimes. So it's cool to see, like, because I think originally I was kind of like, oh man, like it's like 5% connecting Git. That's really scary. And now it's like 50, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a big difference. I think you're right about it's going to be a longer cycle, which maybe makes like drip email flows and things all the more important. And maybe you should think about that in the timing of the drip emails that you're sending out. So instead of like, I think in the Shopify game, at least you're going to sort of front load a lot of emails because you know it's now or they're going to be gone and find another solution, right? 
Yeah, that's a great point, actually, because I did it the way I did the Shopify app, where it sort of fires every day for a week and then never contacts them again, because that worked with Shopify. But yeah, not so much with this, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what I've always done. And one of the things that we're sort of looking at marketing-wise is how do we then, what kind of messages can we put out further into the future of that same flow, right? To try and just stay top of mind, in a sense. And I think, yeah, I think that sounds like a good opportunity for you to explore. At least, you know, send enough emails in the beginning so they feel confident in what they're going to do if you've got some type of learning sort of steps at the beginning. But then also plan to have over the next three months, at least once a month or something, just so they remember you're there, right? Yeah, that's a fantastic idea. I'll definitely do that. Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah, so I've been upgrading the AppBridge 2.0 or upgrading the last app to AppBridge 2.0. We did the other ones, sort of started in November and then December. And usually... You know, it's just upgrading a dependency to Shopify's embedded network. But for my apps, we basically meant turning them all into single page applications, which they weren't to begin with, which changes how all of the sort of JavaScript has to be handled on the page. And a nice step to do at the same time, which I thought would help me in the future, is to move them to, you know, Turbo and Stimulus. And I've mentioned this in the earlier podcast, but the last one was Auto Printer Pro which was the newest app, I guess you could say, as far as like code base goes. And that's probably where I've had enough experience in the past to use JavaScript more than I was maybe for the first apps. So it was a bit more JavaScript heavy. It just meant that it took quite a bit of effort to get it fully upgraded. The app bridge part is quite simple, but the rest of it was more complicated. So we're at least two weeks before the deadline, which is good. So the deadline was March 1st. And actually, we were on holidays for that week, but I didn't want to leave it to the last week in case there was any issues and I had to roll back and, you know, yeah, so we were at a little summer house, middle of winter in Denmark, and we went, it was over on the full like western coast uh, towards the sea there. But it was really nice, a really cozy little place that we went to, and then, you know, pushed the code out on the Monday, and then that was my task for the week sort of thing. <laughs> so I'd have to duck away, you know, for an hour or something, but there's always an hour of downtime where the kids are doing something and my wife is doing something else, and then I could sort of sit there with a the computer and fix any issues and stuff. There's been a generally, I wouldn't say, bump-free, but like there wasn't any major, major issues or anything I couldn't tackle quite quickly. So it was nice. It's good to be up and running on it. But I found out that the Shopify app gem actually needs to be upgraded as well because it relies on the old EA SDK. And they actually only bumped it like after the original deadline. So now I've got the last little step because it uses it for like redirecting, for the escaping the iframe. Yes, I saw that actually. Yeah, yeah. I got that same message. Which is a bit of, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, let's get that done. So that's sort of my little task for the coming weeks, I guess, or week. It shouldn't be a big difference, but. Yeah, it was weird. I was a little confused because I saw that message about the gem, which, you know, I use Laravel. We don't use the gem. But yeah, I kind of figured out like, so I didn't know if something changed after the deadline or this was a old thing that I had missed. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's funny because the Shopify app gem or the API itself, it actually sends along a user agent in the headers to tell Shopify's API that you're using which version of the API, and I believe the gem as well. So you'd think that they'd be able to actually see that information. But uh, anyway, I guess better safe than sorry on their side. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I think also they were like monitoring for the actual events. A contact at Shopify that sort of reached out and said, hey, how's it going with this upgrade for this particular app and all that? And we're seeing some hits still. And that's because the gem isn't upgraded. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I guess they're monitoring it pretty closely. 
I remember, I always remember one nice thing, and I'm not there yet with Translate CI, but it was really good with the Shopify app. And I'm sure you get to deal with this now too. You know, you said you kind of pushed the code on a Monday and you were off the rest of the week. One thing I loved was having, finally reaching that critical mass of users where if I deployed something, despite all my testing, there was a little bug in it, whatever, like I was going to hear about that within like a half hour. And that was so awesome. <laughs> And that's exactly how it was. The support team's been really good. They ping me if there's something urgent, right? So, And they're good at sort of recording, hey, we're seeing this and we're hearing it from multiple people. And so it was a really nice, quick feedback loop to get stuff fixed. Yeah, that's so nice. Like now that with Translate CI having way fewer users, that, that loop is drawn out to a really long process if I miss something, you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. and But I guess this time we've both been talking about tests more and more. And in this case, you're sort of doing more testing up front. So I guess you will catch more of those things. And one of the things that was really nice for me was that Autoprinter Pro had like a full system test suite, pretty much. Yeah, or it was well on the way. So I could be sure of the main flows and things. On that, how do you handle like multi-browser testing? Do you just test towards one browser automatically and then do like smokescreen testing or not smokescreen, but like smoke testing against like say Safari and stuff yourself? So I actually use Safari in my day-to-day so essentially what I do is for browser testing, I use Chrome for the automated tests and I use the app itself in Safari. And other than that, I don't really worry about it too much, to be honest. I, no, like I think a, yeah. between those two, you're pretty well covered, right? Because most of the other one, like Chromium's the underlying rendering agent for the rest, pretty much. Safari you still uses are called WebKit, right? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, that hasn't changed. No. Ah, cool. Maybe I should change my daily drive it to Safari as well. But every time I do it, I get annoyed with it and move back. Right. Quick, so. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, but it's fast. That's one of the things. Yeah, the big downside, I guess, is just Chrome's dev tools are a lot more advanced. So I, I do switch to Chrome sometimes with debugging stuff in the browser. But for the most part, yeah, Safari is fine for my day-to-day. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I'll give it a try. This is slightly off the subject, but I thought this was interesting to talk about. So we had talked, I think the last podcast, we had talked about Tiny Seed. And I had applied. Ah, uh, yeah. Yep, yeah. Yep. So I got an update on that. It was rejected sort of automatically for MRR reasons. So they have a $500 MRR requirement. And I thought it was kind of interesting because the app averages about seven, or Translate CI averages about $700 revenue per month in the three months it's existed, but has very little recurring revenue. So it's kind of interesting. And it points to, I definitely miss that. You know, Shopify obviously is recurring revenue. And I guess I need to think about how to steer users more towards, or if I even need to steer them towards a subscription plan. Because I will say, I don't know, it's tough to figure out because almost every user that has become a customer has returned. They're just choosing to pay as they go rather than a subscription plan. So I don't know if that means that there's something sort of unappealing about the subscription plan terms or if people are just more comfortable paying as they go because they don't have a good estimate of how often they'll need it. Yeah, and I think that's fair. Now, I'm a user of another app that does automated translations as well. And they use a monthly subscription model where they look at the number of keys that you've got and then charge you for that every month. And you can archive a project and it'll have the pricing for those keys? Are you actually retrieving like the translation strings from that provider? Is that why yeah. they're charging that way? Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you basically push your code up to it and then it downloads the locale files. So it's like a sync process that you run as a CLI command. Yeah, so it pushes it up to them. It does all the translations for the ones that you've set to do automatically. You can also do it manually if you want. And then it downloads it again. Okay, so what I was asking is like, you're not using like an API to retrieve the strings on the fly from them? No, no, no. Okay, that's surprising. They would charge you yeah, and for I stuff hate they've it. already done. Yeah. yeah, and especially because you're basically storing like 20,000 table rows, right? In a database somewhere. And I know what that costs. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like, and it's not. 100 euros or almost 200 euros for the amount that I've got, right? I could just sort of cancel the service and then whenever I need to use it, open it up and because it loads in all your existing translations whenever you sync it, right? But it just seems like more effort than... Maybe it's worth the effort seeing as I'm giving them all this money every month for something that I maybe use every second month or every third month or something like that. Yeah, and I imagine that's the worry with the Translate CI subscription. So basically the way it works, it doesn't charge based on the number of strings or anything. It's just if you pay the $79 a month subscription, you get sort of 300 credits each month, so that's 300 words, and then a pretty big discount on any additional translations you do. So it's $0.21 cents for the pay-as-you-go per word or $0.17 cents with the subscription plan. But yeah, I would imagine people are generally worried that they won't use it enough to make use of the subscription benefits. But maybe you can do like a, how would you say, like a low subscription fee for like the people that only want to do automated translations. And then you have the pay-as-you-go as a add-on service for the people that want to do like the first translation or have it always done manually, I guess, by a real person, right? Yeah, I was actually considering, and I've kind of been too busy to deal with it yet, but I was considering doing a machine translation, probably using, I think AWS has like a machine translation that anyone can sort of white label and use. Do that as a subscription only thing, but let that be essentially unlimited because the machine translations are so inexpensive compared to, you know, human, obviously. Yeah. That was my thinking as well. It'll also give you that market that I'm just looking for hey, when I push code, I want an automated translation of any new strings it finds, and that'll be part of my subscription. I don't have to go in and approve a quote every time or whatever, right? And then maybe you can also do, you can sort of market it, like do your initial translations using our professional translation service, keep them up to date with our subscription. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 So that would be your maintenance cost instead of, you know, and then you're insured that you've got anything new. And then it gives you a marketing opportunity to say, hey, it's been 12 months since you had a professional translator and you've translated X percent automatically. How about we go over the new wording to check that it's valid? Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. I like that. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Uh, Yeah, I should be more tired while we do this more often. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I'm going to get a chance to sort of stress test Translate CI really soon, I think, because I'm sort of doing the largest sponsorship yet starting next week, which thankfully I should have internet at my apartment by then, so that'll be good. But I will be sponsoring Laracasts, which is the sort of big educational platform for Laravel developers. So they have basically underneath every video, they have an ad and it's one sponsor per month. And so... Oh, wow. You get the full spot for the month. Yeah, under every video, and it kind of sounds like it'll be millions of page views for those pages, so we'll see what that works out to be. Oh, wow. That's a good one. I'm sure it's also a larger investment as such, so it'd be interesting to see how it comes out. 
Yeah, I mean, Laracast is, so I guess part of my strategy a little bit is to, like Laravel is my specialty. I've been like a Laracast subscriber for like 10 years, but I kind of want to get more involved in the Laravel community, I guess, because they have such a strong community and becoming part of that group, it just opens up better marketing opportunities and things like that. And not just, oh, let me just go spam these people. But if I can sort of be seen as a contributing member to that group, I think that would be super helpful for Translate CI. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the line that's important, at least in the way I view marketing, is keeping it sort of honest and relevant. Yeah, yeah. Not just sending out random stuff. Does Rails sort of have that like core group of like developers and, and services around it that Laravel does? Yeah, maybe not as big as what it seems, the Laravel stuff. It seems more people have built I shouldn't say more, but there seems to be maybe a more diverse group in the Laravel. But I think there's like a handful of people in the Rails community that have created sort of services. You know, you've got Go Rails, which is amazing. It's like a video series where they basically break down anything new that's coming out and you subscribe to that and you get it's learning material. And then that's really, really useful because it often comes with source code that you can go and have a look at afterwards and stuff. Yeah, and then there's a few that do like a bullet train, which is like they're selling you sort of a more complete Rails app to begin with. So it has a bunch of stuff built in from the beginning that you can purchase and then subscribe to to keep it up to date and so forth. So if you're going to do anything that where you need to use Stripe, then you can just basically activate the feature and the code's all there. And there's Sidekick, which does all like background processing and stuff. He's built a pretty big business around that. But yeah, I'd say Go Rails is probably the most well-known. And there's some people that are starting to do similar things around this whole hotwired and stimulus way of writing Rails apps. Yeah, it's worth keeping an eye on, but there's some really good stuff out there. It's funny, it kind of seems like the Laravel and the Rails communities are like very parallel, but very separate. Yeah, I think you know the most I hear about Laravel is from you. So Right, yeah. Yeah, it just doesn't register. And, and maybe that's like the echo chambers on Twitter and stuff. You end up following people that do what you do, and, and it just ends up that way. But yeah, but I think when there's certain things come out, they will spread sort of across each other. So there was this live view stuff that came out. And then that sort of became the idea behind some of the like stimulus, or not stimulus, but what's it called? Stimulus reflex, I think it's called, which is like real-time updates, but powered by WebSockets or whatever. So you can definitely see where a good idea comes out and you quickly see it spread between the different ecosystems. I did notice that that kind of, yeah, popped over around the same time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think that's good. There's different takes on it, so you can sort of look at, okay, and someone's always going to build like a library that might not be the most popular one, but they'll like copy it exactly. Like we want to have the live view for Rails sort of thing. Yeah, otherwise I've just been, on my side at least, uh, planning in Basecamp. Or not planning, but you know we've been doing this whole shape up thing. So last month was our first month where we did the, a cycle. And it was a short month. So it was like three weeks of actual project work for everyone. And then a week where you can clean up and get loose ends done and, and sort of you know, focus on learning or whatever you want to do. And that worked really well. And I think just having sort of a hard deadline for each of the projects, each person gets their own little project, which you go off and do for the three or four weeks. I haven't had any negative feedback. <laughs> I hope people feel free to give it to me if they do, but if they have it. But no, it seems to be positive and everyone took it really well. And, you know, structure is always good as long as it's not like too rigid or whatever. So yeah, so now we've just started on our second cycle. It's fun. The thing I really like is that we all start on a new thing at the same time. And also for my own planning, right? I know that by this date, I need to have the next projects or the next month's worth of projects finished and specified and yeah, ready to go, really. And that was a nice 
way to keep me motivated as well. Obviously, last month I had the average upgrades, which I was doing myself, which meant I didn't have as much time for the planning as I would like to. And I could definitely see that I should not take on those larger projects myself. It's better that I have time to sort of plan. And I should be the one that takes in bug reports or, hey, wouldn't it be great if you could do this thing that takes maybe a day to do and would you know, improve an app? but you wouldn't make a project out of it sort of thing. So that's kind of where I see my role in this is now to focus a lot more on planning, also because now we're getting into more UI and UX planning for a new app. So that takes more time, but also just to yeah focus on the bigger picture more than getting into the code. So I think one thing I learned from the last cycle is that I shouldn't give myself these bigger things because then it means I won't have had as much time to plan for everyone else. That's interesting. So you kind of see yourself now as transitioning out of uh, primarily development role to an actual owner. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess I swing back and forth on it, but because of all these app bridge upgrades, it just made sense for me to do it because I've built all those apps and the developers that are helping have mainly been working on new projects, right? Or adding tests to an existing project where you don't need to know the code base that well to do that. So it just made sense for me to take that on. But then I could definitely feel that, oh, this isn't the right thing for me to be doing while I was doing that. I think that's, that transition is super interesting because I kind of got there with the Shopify app and I don't think I handled it super well. Like when I was out of the day-to-day messing with servers and code and stuff like that, I feel like I lost some interest. I think I feel the same. Like I really enjoyed doing these upgrades, right? They were probably just a bit bigger than I had time for in a single cycle looking at my, how would you say, planning work put on top of it, right? And then you know, when everyone else is working, if they've got questions, they're generally coming to me. So I'm sort of hopping in and out of everyone else's project as well. Interesting, yeah. I don't know, I always found that all that stuff super interesting, sort of those transitions when, you know, your business is humming along, you're doing fine, and it's like, do you just maintain the course or you've got kind of a lifestyle business? Do you grow it to a billion-dollar company? I think all the questions around that get really interesting. They're tough to answer, especially... As a single-person business, I probably started this just to mess with some code. I guess I started this to actually build a business because I didn't write code. So the whole thing for me was like, hey, I'm starting a business. But I definitely get you on, I still don't want to build a billion-dollar company. But I don't want to just be myself doing everything anymore. It's too big for me to be able to do that now. And for us to keep the sort of the professionalism and everything else, that quality that we'd like, then you need help both on the marketing side, on the development side, and on the support side. I think it makes a lot of sense. So I feel good about the transition that we've gone through in the last year, where it went, or like a year and a half, where it went from me on my own to having a team, which I guess in all in all, we're close to 10 people, I guess. Oh, that's awesome. That's fast. Yeah, it goes very fast. <laughs> I mean, a lot of that is the support heroes, right? Who cover 24-7, 365, which is great. But yeah. And then one of the things I wanted to getting back to was, that's the reason that I'm keeping some of these smaller coding tasks for myself, right? So I don't get fully away from coding tasks because that is one of the parts of the business I enjoy the most is messing with the code and finding out what's the right way to do this and stuff. So even though the company's growing, it makes sense for me to find out, okay, what types of tasks that are related to coding should I take on? And it feels like those are the right ones. Things that sort of, I've got a little thing in Basecamp that's called unplanned. I've got a planned one that's designed the next cycle in Basecamp and then I've got an unplanned section in our roadmap. That seems to be a good way to do it for the size of the team that we're at. Yeah, that makes sense. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, and, and sort of back to that original like outsourcing conversation, that's always the first thing on the list is outsource development. But 
as a developer. And I feel like I tried that. And as a developer, I didn't really enjoy that. That's the part I'm really good at. So you want to at least keep your hands in it a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But I mean, I think, you know, I still do code review and all that type of stuff. So I enjoy that as well. But I think, you know, actually writing the code is more fun. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, that's cool. We were talking about the sponsorship that you're doing. And I wanted to ask you, do you feel that you're ready for that type of, are you at a stage with the product that you want to be? Yes. I guess otherwise you wouldn't do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I feel like it's solid now, especially more than anything else, is solid with Laravel. And so I'm comfortable with this going out to specifically Laravel developers. I think it would be a good experience for everyone. The GitHub app was the sort of the main thing I wanted to get done before this went live. So that was out as of like last week. And uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm yeah, excited good. for it. Nice. Yeah, good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's just, you don't want to feel like a wasted opportunity if you weren't, you'd booked a slot and then there's like, oh, with moving and everything else, it's, no, it's good. Yeah, I'm happy to hear it. Yeah, I'm really thankful. Originally, I was looking at this for February and that would have been a disaster, I think. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sure. No, that's perfect. I know it's Shopify related, but saw new App Store experiments ongoing, which is interesting. There's a couple of different things that they're playing around with is the search itself. Now it will suggest apps. So if you type in order printer, you'll see the original sort of keyword search suggestions, and then you'll actually see apps in that list. Yeah, it's only showing me two. I don't get how it does it (laughs) or how it ranks them. Maybe it's based on which apps I have installed, but I'm not logged in. So yeah, so it's not showing them in the same order that you'd see them if you looked at them in the category, which is quite surprising. I would have expected to see the same sort order as you would see in the actual collection itself. But anyway, yeah, it's interesting to see. I'm not sure if that's a permanent thing. I saw them also doing something on the app listing page as well, where they are putting a icon and text at the top where just around the summary of your reviews is up by the main app name and that when you're on the app listing itself, where it'll say like, this app's generally used by stores in your country or in these I'm not sure if it says in your particular country or if it says like in these countries or something popular in your country or whatever. And then there was another one that says people generally keep this app installed for a long time. I can't remember the exact wording of the stuff I saw on it, but Jack's disappeared. He's gone offline. Anyway, so yeah, I'm always wary whenever they're writing experiments because for the last six months, they haven't improved things for our side of things. So I'm always a bit, not worried, but on guard for changes. I think it makes sense to show these things. I think... Showing if something's kept for a long time can both be a good and a bad thing because sort of people are looking at cost. Then they go, oh, okay, this is going to be a cost for the rest of my store's day sort of thing. But yeah, I'm sure they have lots of data to run these tests and make decisions on, so it should be interesting. It seems like we've lost Jack. I think his internet connection, he was getting more and more blurry as we were talking to each other here. So I think I might just call it there for today. We're pretty much at the bottom of our little list of things we wanted to talk about. So I'll leave you to it. And thanks for listening. Um, Yeah, talk to you soon. Cheers.